Hi again. This is Elliot Williams. With a new administration coming in, we've got a bonus episode of Made to Fail for you. As the president-elect prepares to take office amid a global pandemic and a worsening economy, he must also face and address the broken political and economic system that we laid out in our previous episodes. While Made to Fail showed us how the conservative project has hurt our institutions, in this new era, we have the opportunity to rebuild those broken institutions. What has been made to fail can and must be restored to succeed, and that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. I recently moderated a virtual panel to hear the Roosevelt Institute's bold ideas to transform our economy. The event featured President and CEO Felicia Wong, Director of Climate Policy Rihanna Gunn-Wright, and Managing Director of Corporate Power Bharat Ramamurti. We've edited down the audio from the event so you can hear the panel's ideas on how the Biden administration can create a democratically accountable and effective government that will work for everyone. We're excited today uh, to be joined by some of the country's leading experts. So it's Felicia Wong, Bharat Ramamurti, and Rihanna Gunn-Wright from the Roosevelt Institute, and recording it as a special episode of Made to Fail. That's really cool, a live one. And we'll be getting all of their insights on where the Biden administration and the Harris Biden-Harris administration, excuse me, will go and this powerful opportunity they have to start saving our economy from collapse and rebuilding an economy that works for everyone, not just corporations and wealthy individuals. I just wanna start with a big picture question and let's maybe first go to Felicia, then Rihanna and then Barat. So just one at a time, give your answers. But when we launched the podcast, when we launched Made to Fail, we hosted a special panel discussion, Felicia, you were on it, that asked you and a number of other guests to frame out sort of this question of this simultaneous pandemic a pandemic and an economic recession, right? And I want to pose that same question to this group now that we're past the election and we're about to see the start of a new administration. So starting with you, Felicia, big picture, what should the Biden-Harris administration do to address these multiple crises that we're facing and really start transforming the economy? Great question, Elliot. And I'd like to start by taking a step back because you know it's important that the premise of the Made to Fail podcast is in many ways the same as the premise of the Roosevelt Institute's overall work, that all of the crises we're facing, economic, public health, racial, these crises were actually made by design, right? These are not accidents because conservative policymaking over the past 40 years and I say it's conservative policymaking, but it's actually happened during both Republican and Democratic administrations. That way of thinking about policy has created the very precarity and the suffering that we see now. So let me just go over that quickly and then answer your question directly about how the Biden-Harris administration can do different and do, I hope, better. But this 40-year conservative thinking, it really has to do with our deepest beliefs, beliefs that I grew up with. 
uh, our deepest beliefs about how the economy would work best. Our politics for 40 years has been based on this idea of deregulation. If you privilege private profit, if you privilege individual choices, that was going to lead to growth and prosperity and stability. But as it turns out, that was a lot of wishful thinking at best, right? And frankly, it's ended up almost killing our democracy. So what we need to do, what the Biden-Harris folks need to do is to really flip that on its head. The Biden-Harris administration, I would say, if they wanna build back better, they have to do two things concurrently. First, I think they need to provide immediate direct relief, not relief, not relief that's sort of subsumed in tax credits that people don't understand, but immediate direct relief to the tens of millions of people who are in trouble right now. People have to feel that relief and they have to know it came from their government. And the second thing that the Biden-Harris team has to do is to address the underlying structural crises, structural causes, sorry, of these crises, the way that government is sort of uh, invisible and ultimately the way in which government has been starved and strangled and therefore is unable to frankly sustain our democracy. Thank you so much for that. So Rihanna, what about you? What do you think? So I agree with so much of what Felicia laid out and something that I would add that I think is an important layer is that the 40 year sort of conservative project, but as she pointed out, it happens during democratic and Republican administrations. But neoliberalism has in many ways been animated by, motivated by, and then had at its core white supremacy. And so as we talk about overlapping crises, in some ways, right, racism and white supremacy is one of those crises that we see sort of happening right now. But the truth is that white supremacy and racism are the cause of a lot of the precarity that we're seeing and experiencing. So just in the last election, what something like 70 million people voted for the Trump administration, they wanted to reelect President Trump. But I think it's important to recognize that in doing that, those folks were saying that with the cascade of crises, COVID, the recession, climate change, that what was most important and that because we know how many of those votes were motivated by racial resentment is folks were honestly saying that white supremacy is the most important thing right here. And that that becomes a really difficult thing to move around, right? When you think about the fact that we're constrained by the fact that the electoral college, right, emphasizes areas that largely have more white folks. And then the neoliberal project has at the same time as sort of money and politics is more important than ever. We're supposed to be able to participate in these free markets for so many people who've been hurt by legacies of white supremacy and racism. First of all, those markets weren't never free for them. So they they, and I include myself in that, haven't been able to participate in the same way, but at the same time, you're also hollowing out economic wealth, right? Inequality is increasing, and you have increased voter suppression, which is also part of this sort of project of neoliberalism. So at the same time, as sort of more than ever, we need people to be moving together collectively. We have this force that is on multiple levels, imbalancing our system and moving it to serve one people, one group of people in particular. And that is one of the sort of central challenges that I think the Biden-Harris administration is going to have to 
really, I think, actively try to engage with. And it's never going to happen in one presidential administration that it's solved, but start to engage with how do we sort of start to unwind these systems and our responses to these different crises. Really important point about that long-term project. It's not just, you know, Joe Biden can click a switch tonight and fix all of uh, the nation's problems. So no, very uh, savvy point you made at the end there. Rihanna, so Barat, what about you? And again, just to echo what the question was for folks who might just be tuning in, what big picture, what can the Biden-Harris administration do to address the multiple crises we're facing now, both economic, public health, and whatever else you throw in there? Sure. And I think just, again, I will answer that, but I'll, I'll also start with the big picture of you, again, coming from my corporate power perspective. I think what we've seen over the last 40 years in terms of the conservative project is the idea that the government stands in opposition to freedom. In other words, as the government asserts a bigger role for itself in, in markets, that takes away freedom that people have. And so sort of the Reagan revolution idea was if we have a smaller role for government, that will mean more freedom for people. I think what we've seen is actually, as the government takes a step back, it's not that it leads to more freedom for people, it's just that that creates a power vacuum that's filled by corporations, by big corporations. Instead of the government writing the rules, big corporations are writing the rules. And to my mind, it's a, a, a better assertion of freedom. People are more free if they themselves through the, through the government are deciding what the rules should be that they should live by rather than having uh, big corporate actors decide what those rules should be, corporate actors that are driven purely in a pursuit of profit, which means that profit comes at the expense of people's wages, people's health care, the environment, and, and so on. And I think that the single biggest thing that the Biden-Harris administration can do is rehabilitate the notion that government is a force for good in our society and in our economy and that government rules are actually what helps make us free, that allow us to compete on a level playing field. It's not competing on a level playing field if financial institutions can systematically discriminate against Black and Hispanic borrowers, right? We need government rules in order to create a situation in which everyone is free to compete based on their own merits, as an example. And so I, I think that the crisis that we're in now, it, it makes, it lays bare the fact that we need a strong government in order to address the issues that are facing us, right? We have a, a pandemic which requires a coordinated response at the federal level, and you need a strong government in order to do that. Climate change is a existential threat to the country and to the world, and you can't rely on corporations alone to address that problem, right? You need a strong and robust federal government to do it. And so I think the opportunity that the Biden-Harris administration has is to make a really full-throated case for the role of government in, in our society and, and the, a robust role. And I think as Felicia said, that means providing direct assistance to people who are, are in need, to provide direct assistance to small businesses that are in need. As Rihanna noted, it means taking you know, very fast and, and decisive steps to address the climate crisis with the lens that the climate crisis, as with so many other things, has a you know, sort of disparate racial impact in the United States and across the world. And so my hope is that in addition to the policies that the Biden-Harris administration pursues, that rhetorically there's also an emphasis that government it can be the solution to some of these problems. And I think you've already seen that in some of the things that they've said about building back better 
and so on. I think that the economic platform that they ran on was one of the most progressive ones in recent memory. And so I think that the seeds of that are there, but I think it's important to follow through on it when they actually come into office. You know, it's funny, I saw a tweet this morning along those lines, and you know, it was Twitter, so it was a little pointed and snarky, but it was basically, we are turning a corner now come January because people who fundamentally, competent people who believe that government actually should function are coming into government, replacing people who were incompetent and believed that government ought to be stripped of all of its resources. You know, anyway, it was pithier than that. But yeah, it's all about do people believe in the fundamental good of government? So anyway, that was the big two things. Everybody, that was a, that was the big picture question just for everybody to get their thought out. Now I just want to bounce some ideas around. So you know, one interesting question that I just love to put. Maybe we can just you know throw this out to the room. Maybe Rihanna kick us off with this one. And I'm just fascinated by this historically. Right, presidents rarely lose after a term. It just doesn't happen. And frankly, and even more fun factually, it almost never happens when the president isn't challenged by someone of his own party. It happened to Carter with Kennedy. It happened to H.W. Bush with Perot. It just doesn't happen, right? So, okay, it happened here, no primary challenge, whatever. What does that mean for Joe Biden, Rihanna? And you think like, does he have a mandate coming in on account of having knocked off a president? Uh, I mean, in lots of ways, yes. But I think like, I think the idea of mandates is very interesting, because part of what gives you a mandate is that everyone feels you have a mandate, right? It feels decisive, it feels ended. And I think we're in a moment where that is very purposefully not happening, right? Where it's being dragged out so that, you know, a lot of folks who voted for Trump are are being, you know, motivated to to think that the election results won't matter. So I think that is, that's tough, but I do think it still doesn't change the fact that he got more votes, right, than any other president in history, and that so many people who voted for him truly want to see something different. So I do think there is a mandate there. I think that you know, how that shows up and how people interpret it will be really interesting to see. The only thing I will say too, is there's a question of a mandate to act on behalf of who. Very quickly after the results started coming in, well, well, when it looked like the race was gonna tip in President-elect Biden's favor, he came out and said, you know, I'm gonna be an American president. But in a context where you know, we're talking about what are legal votes, we're talking about all sorts of things. There is a really big question right now about, I think, who, when that, who will he be acting on behalf, particularly when there were uh, these sort of new multiracial coalitions that are really just coalitions of people of color that helped him come in at the same time as there's a lot of anxiety about the white working class, et cetera. So I think it'll be very interesting to see how the mandate is levied and for whom. There is no accident that I turned that question to you first because of that. And so much of your work is thinking about race. And when we say mandate, when we say working class, when we say majority, what's the adjective that's supposed to go before that that's left out? Well, I was just gonna say one of the things that is so notable about Biden And I would say that this is more true of him than even Obama. Biden is a politician at core. And I kind of like that, right? I kind of like the idea that he is going to go out 
stitch together a coalition and really listen. I think his mandate is going to be to help the people who voted for him. And he definitely demonstrated over the course of the campaign, moving from the primary to the general, that he was listening to the people who were voting for him. I think it is no accident that he he got a lot better and Rihanna and Barack can both say more about this, but he got a lot better over the course of, you know, the last year on the question of economic transformation towards a decarbonized future. Why is that? Because he listened to advocates like Rihanna uh, and others who were arguing that this was really important. So that is not an accident. It's up to us to remind him that that is his mandate and to, as FDR said, you know, make him do it. Stay on that. Let's stay on that for a second, Barack. Let me just dig down on Felicia's point. What do you think are the most pressing issues that progressives ought to focus on when it comes to whether it's coercing, pressuring, engaging with the Biden administration over these coming years. Yeah, I was going to just say on that last point that uh, I think Biden, President-elect Biden has, a, has a, a significant mandate just based on the popular vote. But even beyond that, there's a mandate for big, bold change. If you look at on issue after issue, there's support for huge investments in Uh, green manufacturing, green technology to address the climate crisis. There's a big mandate for expanding social security, for canceling student loan debt, for a $15 minimum wage, right? So I think the mandate really means to take fundamental, robust steps to fundamentally restructure the economy. In terms of what to focus on, I think that there's a sweet spot of, of changes that both provide relief in the short term and also fundamentally restructure the economy in the long term. And to me, that is the the place to start, right? So big investments in in green infrastructure in the short term, for example, can be a stimulus, which is needed now, but also paves the way for addressing the climate crisis, for rebuilding some of our crumbling infrastructure and so on. Canceling student loan debt is a short-term stimulus because it means that millions of people who are otherwise sending $200, $300, $400 a month to to the government to pay off their student loans instead have that money in their pocket and they can use it to shop locally or or start a small business or put it towards a a new home. It also fundamentally increases wealth, including disproportionately in in Black and Hispanic, for Black and Hispanic families in a way that fundamentally restructures our economy so that in particular, this millennial generation isn't burdened by this debt throughout their life. You know, you look at the data, that generation is buying fewer homes than any previous year, uh, generation. That that generation, a huge percentage of it is still living at home in large part because they have so much debt that they're, they can't they, they can't afford to pay the rent. They can't afford to buy a home of their own. You free them of that debt, that helps in the short term. That also creates you know, more small businesses that open now, more homes that are purchased now, that trickle, that uh, has a ripple effect throughout the economy. So there's a series of issues, like I said, where you can get a short-term benefit that's clearly related to the crisis that we're facing, but also pave the way for a more just and fair economy for decades to come. And my hope is that the Biden administration doesn't hold back in those areas. I mean, one other thing, just on the mandate point, the voters are very clear that they want relief and fundamental change to the economy much more than they care about the deficit. And I think that one heartening thing that I've heard out of multiple folks from the Biden administration is that they do not worry about the deficit 
when it comes to making sure that we give people the relief that they need in the short term and that we're able to build back better over the long term. And I think that that is a critical shift that we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years as well. So I, I'm the one of the four of us on this uh, conversation right now who's not at the Roosevelt Institute. So I haven't gotten to hang out with you at the water cooler. I mean, again, nobody gets to hang out at the water cooler anymore because it's 2020. But if you did, just I, maybe just by the show of hands and your screens here, who's the most cynical of the three of you? Who do you think that is? Anybody? Anybody going to own it? About what? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you spoke first, so I'm going to set this, the next question to you because I'm actually, this is like put on your cynicism hat right now. And what pushback do you expect the Biden-Harris administration to, to get from Republicans, definitely in the Senate, but Republicans in Congress generally? Like what, what do you expect them to not get pushback on? I think that's well, the, yeah. the better question. And yeah. I think, and I don't, I mean, that's from a cynical place, but it's also from a very, I feel like for me, an honest place of recognizing that a lot of things that get demonized by Republicans, particularly since the Obama administration, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the policy always, right? It can be something that they proposed long ago. It now comes out of a Democrat's mouth and now it's, no, you know, we don't like that anymore. So for instance, in terms of, in terms of climate change, a lot of people don't know, but Senator Rubio put out a long paper on industrial policy and the and need he quoted for the, the Roosevelt government. Institute. Yes. And the need for the Yay. government to, again, re-engage in industrial policy, the role that it needs to play, et cetera. And obviously there's some dovetailing between the two, but that never comes up right in Republican conversation. Senator Rubio doesn't say that on the floor when the Green New Deal comes up. Oh, actually, I agree with like 40 percent of that. That's not happening. Right. And so to me, it's difficult to have a conversation about what they will and won't block because so much of that has to do with politics and not the policy. And it does feel like the goalposts move all the time. And so I think for me, that's why I think it's, it's, it's useful and, and helpful, I think, to in, in places. So again, say climate change, there's a lot of interest in innovation, right? And, and investing in innovation in a way that's bipartisan. But I think that when that happens, I think it's good to, to try to draw those things out. But I think it's much more likely or maybe makes more sense to try to put those forward, but also still expect intransigence right from the Republican side and then just really just always be trying to figure out how do you deal with intransigence instead of we're going to entice you back when you're not going to do that on policy grounds that's just not happening it seems right I'm seeing cynicism from Felicia yes no I mean I'm the least cynical of all of us I'm fairly <laughs> certain of that much to my own demise Probably. often but at any rate <laughs> You know, Rihanna is totally right here. The question isn't about pushback or intransigence. The, tr the question is what you do with that, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I were advising the Biden-Harris administration on policy, you know, or on politics, I would suggest that one way to deal with the inevitable pushback is to 
go ahead and keep your promises, right? What the American people want is relief from COVID. What the American people want in a stimulus bill is for their state and local governments to be funded so that teachers and firefighters can keep their jobs. What the American people want is a $15 an hour minimum wage. You know, it's now sort of famous, but Florida, which did vote for Trump, also voted to raise the minimum wage. This is what the American people want. So that's this is what Democrats campaigned on. So go ahead and keep your promises, propose the solutions, and don't negotiate against yourself. What's the point? Yeah, I yeah. agree. With yeah, go for it. No, I was going to say, so you've worked in the Senate yourself, I think, I think the most recently of all of us on here. So it's two questions. One, you know, how does Biden keep his promises? And two, for you, Brian, anybody can answer this, but, you know, is that Washington that Joe Biden used to speak about so longingly, is it just dead and not here anymore? It's not, it's not a, rea- it's a fiction now, I think, but tell me what you think. Well, look, I think that the president-elect is pretty clear-eyed about the challenges that he's likely to face from a Republican Senate, if in fact there is a Republican Senate come January. I think he's also been clear-eyed about the fact that there's a lot you can do without Congress. You can uh, cancel student loan debt without Congress. You can obviously do a lot on the COVID front in terms of managing the federal response. There's quite a bit you can do on climate change without Congress. And I think that taking full advantage of the tools that already exist within the administration is going to be important for two reasons. Number one, as Felicia said, it allows you to start delivering on your promises right away. And number two, I think it does create a situation where there's a better chance of negotiating with Congress, right? If you are doing things that maybe Senate Republicans don't like, it, it, it adds to the incentive for them to negotiate with you so that maybe they can put their own stamp on some of that stuff, right? My, my, my general belief is put pressure on the other side by doing popular things that are within your control and then negotiate, right? Don't come hat in hand to negotiate with the other side, knowing, as Rihanna said, it's in their political interest in almost every case to keep walking away from you, right? It's in their, it's in their political interest to make the administration look ineffective. It's a, in their political interest, as we just talked about at the beginning, to make government look ineffective. Right. It's it's there's this scenario, there's this, you know, situation where the Republican mantra for so long has been that government is ineffective. And then oftentimes they get elected and they're really going to try their hardest to prove that government is ineffective. Right. By stopping popular programs, by weighing down efforts to provide relief to people. Now, I'll say that the one time that Congress really swung into action was back in March when COVID was spiking. And I think, to be honest, a big part of the Republican motivation during that time was that the stock market was tanking. And they felt like <clears throat> this was, a, this was a, a reason for them to swiftly approve a very large stimulus bill. And, and look, a lot of money went out the door and it really helped a lot of people. You know, I think that the challenge going forward is, will the Biden administration be able to create such a sense of urgency Uh, among Republicans in the Senate. And my argument is that the way to do that is to start taking bold steps by yourself right away and force them to react to that, again, rather than trying to endlessly negotiate against with partners that are, in many cases, motivated not to reach an agreement with you. So, you know, I feel remiss with the three of you on here, particularly Barat and Rihanna, 
to not talk about climate for a while and what it all means in the context of Joe Biden and an incoming administration and so on. So putting like putting you both together because this is sort of your the Venn diagram of your of your issues. Where do you see sort of corporate power and climate policy as intertwined and fitting all together? And how does the Biden administration, Biden Harris administration, work its way through it? Maybe Rihanna first. What do you think? I mean, I think they're very intertwined in lots of ways. One, I mean, on a number of levels. On one level, some of the largest and most powerful corporations in the world and in our country are fossil fuel corporations, right? And some of the most active billionaires, right? These activist donors that have really supported neoliberalism, this conservative project like the Koch brothers are fossil fuel heirs. They make money off of fossil fuels. And so in lots of ways, corporate power is very tied up in this, particularly with the Trump administration and the ways that they have tried to support fossil fuels to drive money, to prop up in particular coal industries. It also means now that there's a lot of public money tied up in fossil fuel companies as well, Mm -hmm. including in the CARES bailout, right? Something like 500 plus fossil fuel companies have received, I think now it's something like 5.8 billion in aid compared to clean energy companies that got no targeted aid, right? And are shedding jobs like, well, I shouldn't say like water. I mean, clean energy on the whole is still doing better than I think people expected, but Mm -hmm. it did not at all get propped up in the same ways, right? And that has so much to do with corporate power, with the power of fossil fuel corporations, the way money is involved in politics. But I will say in other ways that corporate power is tied up in climate, and particularly if you're thinking about sort of start thinking, bringing in entities like the Fed or the Treasury, et cetera. But these two things, it's just interesting. It's important to note that in so many ways, economic policy and fiscal policy, which is super tied up in the ability of corporations to concentrate power, is integral to climate, right? Because if climate is driven by economic activities, the choices about where to put money, where capital flows, how you're in incentivizing investment, et cetera, all of that now has a role not just in how you're building up clean energy, but how you are winding down fossil fuels. So it's very, very sort of all linked up. And we're also dealing with the fact that clean energy, the main competitors, whether it's solar, wind, they don't have the corporate power of fossil fuels, which also means then that they don't have the political power. They don't have the lobbying power. They're not seen as sort of integral to the U.S. economy, which in some ways fossil fuels are. We are a major exporter of, of oil now. And so just in so many ways, these things are, are linked up and part of the climate fight that no one's talking about, or I shouldn't say no one, but that hasn't gotten as much sort of play in the 2020 election cycle, especially when we're thinking about how much has been t- talked about investment, which I help write the Green New Deal, I'm all very into, is fossil fuels, right? You cannot, the problem is both and. We have to increase the amount of clean energy, but we also have to transition off of fossil fuels. So the Biden-Harris administration, that's something that they're going to have to really 
try to tackle. And that is luckily a lot of that can be done by executive action, but not all of it. Anything else on that, Barat? Or no, I agree. I, I think it's been heartening that the Biden Harris team has put so much emphasis on climate and addressing climate change, both in the general election and and since the election. I do think it's going to be central to every economic policy. I mean, Roosevelt put out a paper recently that basically said, you know, there's no such thing as a climate neutral program, right? Every single thing that we do that touches the economy, that touches financial regulation should be done through a climate lens, right? What are the rules for banks? Well, we should think through what the rule, how those rules are Mm -hmm. going to affect financing the fossil fuel industry, financing the clean energy industry. How should we think about providing direct support to businesses that we should also think through what the climate implications of that uh, are going to be. So, you know, my hope is that that is the lens that the Biden administration is going to adopt. I mean, just, you know, one final point is just the, the importance of the international effort here, right? Even if the United States is able to bring its emissions down to zero very quickly, there's still a major climate change problem because it's a global problem. And so one thing I'm hopeful for is that the next administration will be much better about exercising global leadership. I mean, it's really, it's, the current administration is at zero, so they have nowhere to go except up, of course. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, potentially making clean energy products here in the United States and and exporting them to countries that are going to need them and so on. And I just think that that aspect of it is important. And just to go back to the corporate aspect of it, I mean, very simply, if, if you have corporations, especially multinational corporations, and their only goal is to maximize the amount of profit, maximize the amount of money that they send to shareholders each quarter, you know, it's not in any one of their individual financial interests to take significant steps to address climate change, right? Because oftentimes that means that take, means a financial hit to them in the short term. So obviously that requires government intervention to make sure that every company is affected equally. But beyond that, multinational corporations, even if the U.S. puts in place stringent standards that that potentially limit what they can do here, it's relatively easy for them to shift operations abroad to com- countries where there aren't as stringent rules, right? And that could, so that's, that again, underscores the need for international cooperation to make sure that, you know, we're not just simply shifting bad activities abroad, we're actually reducing the net amount of bad activities. So yeah, I know you want to go to questions in just a second, but I just wanted to comment here on just how post-neoliberal, getting back to the earlier part of our conversation, just how post-neoliberal the Biden-Harris approach and the Rihanna Gunwright Barat Ramamurti approach to <laughs> climate change really is. Because we're really talking about two things. One is using the power of government to stop polluting fossil fuel companies. That is one thing that, you know, I think the neoliberals, they just didn't think to contend with that. So that's one thing. But the other part of the strategy is really about public investment, direct public investment. You know, the Build Back Better plan that uh, President-elect Biden ran on had $2 trillion that with public money 
that was designed to be invested in green, clean energy, decarbonizing industries. This would create jobs. This would actually kind of set the North Star for a new kind of American economy. That robust government kind of innovative role is also quite post-neoliberal and something that, you know, Milton Friedman did not conceptualize, but it's clearly necessary. So I think both these kind of the carrot of public spending and the stick of, you know, regulation, both those things together would be and will be effective climate change policy and are both quite post-neoliberal. What do you think were the political and policy lessons learned from the last several years? I know that's a big open-ended question, but, but in particular, where do you think you and where do you think Roosevelt might have even made miscalculations that, that you might want to avoid in the future or decisions that maybe you could learn the most from as you embark on interacting from the outside with, let's say, more friendly administration? Right. Well, it's a good question. When you when I think about what we might have misunderstood over the last four years, or I'll, I'll even go back a little bit farther over the last six years towards you know sort of the end of the Obama administration, I I think that we didn't put enough emphasis. All of us in the progressive movement didn't put enough emphasis on just explaining plainly to the American people what we are for. I think that we are for robust government action. We are for a a decarbonized and an anti-racist economic approach. And I don't think that we did that I I don't think any of us have done that as clearly and plainly as we should. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about the nitty gritty of policy and, you know, whether the right tax rate for individuals is 39% or 34%. And these are very important questions, you know, whether student loan debt should have an income cap or not. Incredibly important questions. But what we forget sometimes is that politics is about speaking plainly to the American people and speaking plainly to ourselves so that we can maintain a coalition. And I think that that is actually one thing that you could give Donald Trump some credit for. He speaks quite plainly. Whether or not what he is saying is remotely credible or factual or morally coherent is, is another set of questions. But I do think that what we ought to learn from the last, you know, from our last four, six, eight year experience at Roosevelt is the importance of not just getting the data and the policies right, but also of saying very clearly why these things are going to be good for real people. Great. So, you know, Rihanna, I'm going to put the first audience question to you coming out of this point, which is a point that you often hear the president supporters talk about, or, or, or at least media when talking about in the context of Trump supporters is how much they don't trust the media anymore, how much they don't trust government, how much they don't trust systems, right? And nationwide, trust in government, this is a question for the audience, trust in government and media, it's an all-time low right now with economic inequality at an all-time high. And because I think progressives don't trust government to some extent right now either. And I'd be curious to hear your thought. How do you how do you slash we rebuild that? Well, the thing is, I think rebuilding trust is actions, right? You can't ask mm. anyone to give you trust. I mean, that's fine, but the nature of trust is that I believe that you will do the things that you say. And I believe, you know, I'm willing to go with you even if I don't necessarily see the path forward, even if I don't understand fully what's going to happen. And I think 
I think it goes back to what Felicia said to build trust. I think part of it, and I think that's trust on both sides, right? Is for particularly the next presidential administration to keep its promises, right? Because even on the conservative side, what you'll often hear is, and I don't watch Fox News all the time, so I mean, maybe it's changed. I don't watch Fox News at all, is that, you know, Dems doublespeak right? They say they're for the people, but they're really just all rich people, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously a lot of that is baseless, but some of it in the sense that Dems say that they're for one thing sometimes and then go and do something else is real. And so I think that on both sides, it's, it, it will help if the Biden-Harris administration shows up as who they said that they will be. And, you know, I think that is one big thing. And then though, I think the other thing with trust, particularly if you're talking about intra-party trust or trust in amongst the folks who, I guess, generally make up the Democratic Party coalition, is, is to not sort of walk back commitments to progressives and in particular people of color once the campaign is over, right? So you know, so one of the, for instance, one of the big promises from the Biden-Harris team was 40% for environmental justice, right? That didn't make it onto the official website, but a lot of the other climate commitments did, right? So all, but these are the same, that's one of the main asks from the communities that came out, right? Who faced unprecedented voter suppression to come out and vote for the president-elect and the vice president-elect. And so, that sort of back talk, I think, is is really harmful for trust within the party, too. And, and I think, again, not to be a broken record, but part of it is about white supremacy, right? And when you have one party that is so far to the right and so and has come out very clearly as so hostile to interests of people of color, one of the ways that you keep a bipartisan coalition together is you stop talking about people of color, right? You focus on the issues that are raceless as a way to move forward. But I think that that, even though it might work in the short term, ultimately breaks down trust in the long term and should be avoided at all costs. Folks who are listening may not see Barat uh, nodding uh, furiously in agreement. So you probably have a view on trust here too. I agree with all that. I think that, you know, so two, two quick things. One, you know, I think it's important that, uh, I think one of the reasons people don't trust government is they feel like their elected representatives aren't working for them. And a lot of that is about you know, sort of both soft and obvious corruption, right? I think it's a lot of it is about a revolving door. I think it's about the fact that, I don't know what the latest number is, but I think it used to be 40 or 50% of members of Congress after they leave Congress go become lobbyists. Right, like, what does that say to people about what people who are supposedly working in the public interest are really trying to do? And I think if Democrats are going to be the party of a big, bold, you know, forward-thinking, proactive government, they have to rehabilitate the notion that government is working in the public interest. And so, I think it's really important that you know, anti-corruption is at the center of what Democrats focus on. You know, number two, I think the other problem that Democrats often have is that they get all up in their head about how these policies should be designed. And as a result, they become complicated and hard for people to understand and hard for them to access. 
right? Using the word uh, incentivize. Yeah, uh, you know, (laughs) instead of giving people money, let's do a tax credit, but you have to claim the tax credit by filling out this form. And if you make $1 (laughs) more than this amount of money, you're not going to get the tax credit. But, or, you know, instead of giving you money for healthcare, you have to create a, you know, health savings account, which you have to roll over every, you know, it becomes complicated and burdensome. It means that less, fewer people take advantage of it. So to me, the, the key is, do big, bold, easy to understand ideas. And who cares that if at the margin, some people who maybe shouldn't have gotten benefits got benefits, you know, let's go big and bold, you know, sending everybody a $1,200 check, right? There's probably a lot, a lot of people who got that check who didn't need the check in March. But guess what? It, it really helped benefit the economy. And when you opened your mail one day, you found a $1,200 check that was signed by Donald Trump. You know, I, for a lot of people who have minimal interaction with the government, that was a big deal. And I think that that potentially explains some of the voting patterns that we saw that that people seem confused by uh, right now. So, you know, I think about how that applies to student loan debt. You know, 45 million people have student loan debt. You cancel a big chunk of that, you know, people are gonna see in their accounts. I I would send everybody a letter that says, you know, $50,000 of your student loan debt has been canceled by the Biden-Harris administration, congratulations. Right. And that's a concrete thing that people can touch and feel in their lives that the government has done for them. And I think that that's better than, you know, we're going to defer your payments for a few more months or you have to fill out a form and show that, you know, if your income and, you know, if you do 20 years worth of payments on this loan, we'll cancel what's left of it 25 years from now. Right. Big, bold and obvious, I think, is the key to to, to that. And I think that the 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 one of the big lessons from the last election, in my view, is that policy matters more than message, right? Pol- actually helping and delivering change to people matters, and that can overcome the worst message and the worst messenger in many cases. So let's focus on getting the policy right. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, you talked about the check from Donald Trump with with, with his name on it, right? And uh, you know, a lot of people on the left sort of grumbled, and oh my God, how could he do that and put it... But, you know, it connected people. Just the other day, I think it was just yesterday, the White House press secretary referred to the Trump vaccine, where, you know, if people don't engage with government, what they hear about is the president gave us a vaccine. Now he's not going to be president in three weeks or four weeks or whatever, but he's still, you know, that's something. Let's talk about taxes for a quick second. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Felicia. Where do you think taxes fit into all this? And I know someone raised that in the Q&A. Right. Well, I'm glad you asked because I really wanted to talk about taxes. I love talking about taxes because, you Yay. know, all of us who are uh, of a certain age grew up with the idea that you should never talk about taxes, that taxes are like the third rail of American politics and all any Americans ever wonder lower taxes. And of course, many candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, ran on raising taxes for the wealthy. You know, what? what is so fascinating about this is that Raising taxes is an incredibly popular set of policies. The American people really want this. Wealth taxation, which I know Bharat has done a tremendous amount of work on, 70% of Americans want wealth taxes. But when you look at raising corporate taxes, the vast majority of Americans, the the 80, 90% of Democrats and more than 50% of Republicans actually wanna see corporate taxes raised. I think we don't give the American people enough credit when we say that everybody just wants low taxes. The American people actually understand that taxes are what we collectively, and especially people who are very fortunate, very wealthy, 
pay so that we can have, you know, healthy economy so we can have streets and schools and public safety and hospitals. That's why we pay taxes. I think the American people get that and they know that the tax system right now is completely skewed. So despite the potentially treacherous legislative landscape that the Biden-Harris administration might be facing, I think that they ought to do everything they can to keep their promises, which is basically to raise over $3 trillion in taxes over the next 10 years to make sure that we can spend that money on things that the American people want and need. And also because taxing people at the top, which is most of what that $3 trillion would really do, would actually improve the power balance in the American economy and that would improve our democracy. Let me ask a question. Before I ask the final question of the night, of the day, I wanna ask all three of, this just uh, occurred to me, Felicia, just talking, uh, hearing you right there. How, not how old were you, but when did you first learn that the term tax relief is not uh, something that exists naturally in the English language and actually was invented by political activists to turn people off of the notion of taxation? It was well into my adult life after even having used the term or heard the term and just had it roll off and looked at the newspaper that, that you know it was actually explained that no, all, none of these things are an accident. But I'm actually curious as to particularly for those of you who live in this world, in this space, when you finally picked yeah. up on that. It, it's just, yeah, it's funny because like Felicia said, I, I, you know, growing up, it was drilled into your head that talking about higher taxes was death politically. And yet now, you know, the polling shows repeatedly that it's one of the most popular things you can talk about. There are actually policy proposals. There's been some polling done that shows, you know, do you want to invest? Do you want to borrow money to invest a trillion dollars in in new infrastructure, or would you rather raise taxes to to cover a trillion dollars in new infrastructure? And the you know actually paying high, you know the higher taxes option is more popular, right? So people are affirmatively in favor of of higher taxes. I mean, one interesting note that's a little bit uh, unrelated, but I think is interesting is that you know there's currently the the authority in the federal government to send you know, tens of millions of Americans pre-filled tax returns, right? So think about it, you already get a W-2 that says this is how much income you have. Well, you know, your employer sends that exact same information to the federal government, to the IRS. And so it'd be trivially easy for the IRS to just put that information into your, into your tax form and send it to you. And all you have to do is sign it and send it back. And that's the end of doing your taxes. Okay. The reason that that doesn't happen is because there's a massive tax prep industry that makes you know, hundreds of millions of dollars each year, helping people fill out their taxes. And the biggest advocate, one of the biggest advocate for not doing these pre-filled forms is people who are in favor of lower taxes, because they know that the pain of going through and filling out your taxes is one of their best tools for creating anti-tax sentiment, right? And if it became easier to pay your taxes, people would be more open to the idea of paying higher taxes. And so it's just an interesting sort of uh, overlap in, in, this, in this concept. And I think yet another area where the Biden administration has some tools that it can use administratively to make life better. Again, this is a concrete thing. You know, imagine if you opened up your mail and you got a pre-filled form that all you had to do to file your, ta file your taxes was sign it and send it back instead of going to H&R Block around the corner and spending, you know, potentially hundreds of dollars uh, and hours out of your day to do that, right? So... My hope is that this administration will be taking all of these types of steps, not just some of them, all of them, to try and make life concretely better for folks, 
in this variety of ways. So for a final question of the day, let's start, Rihanna, what do you think? You know, how do you respond to these criticisms that student loan debt cancellation is actually a regressive measure that, that hurts, pardon me, helps people at a higher income level, will, will disproportionately hurt black and brown people, and you know, ultimately ends up helping a more privileged group? Or do you think some of those concerns are misplaced? Curious to hear your thoughts. I think that some of those concerns are misplaced and quite frankly, looking at the, just like looking at the situation that we're in, given the recession and just give people relief. Like it's Mm. not that, I just don't think it is that deep in a lot of ways. And, and I know in particular, I used to work with student parents and one of the really terrible things about student loan debt is that it, you, it will follow you even if you didn't finish school. Right. So you have people who have left school because of care responsibilities, because someone got sick or who entered into for profit colleges or other sort of predatory institutions. And now they're left with debt. And those are largely low income folks. Right. And I think that that is just given the way that the system is set up and the reasons that people end up in those situations, even if they're a smaller percentage of borrowers, that money will go very far for them. And and so I think that it's just one of those things like Barat said, we can spend all day worrying about like the details, but this is again something that's big, will give people immediate relief and is simple to understand and can happen without Congress at a time when we need as much money running through our system as possible. I think that it's I think it's important, but I'll kick it to Barat because I know there's some funniness about the data for low-income <laughs> borrowers that I'm like not deep into. And the fu- I'll just add on tax relief. I, I didn't learn that term for a long time. Everyone in my life was too broke to pay taxes for real. So it was always tax return season. <laughs> but yeah, I'll go to Barat about low-income. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that people throw around the word regressive without, I don't really... I don't think they really define what it means. It just sounds bad. And I don't really think it applies here at all. You know, 45 million people have student loan debt. It is, you know, there, there's a, a significant racial disparity in how that debt is allocated. You know, Black students in particular have to, more, a uh, higher percentage of them have to borrow to go to school. They graduate with more debt. They take longer to pay it off. I mean, I think one of the most damning stats about student loan debt is that 20 years after graduation, the average white borrower has paid off 95% of their student loan debt. And the average black borrower still owes 95% of their student loan debt 20 years after graduating. And that's in part because black borrowers tend to not have family wealth to draw upon to pay down the debt. It's because there's labor market discrimination, which means that Black students don't get the same wage benefit of a college degree. And it also means that a lot of Black uh, students don't finish school because, in part because of the debt that they're taking on. And they can't financially afford it anymore. So they, they're sort of in this worst case scenario where they have debt and, and they don't have the degree to show for it. So, you know, if you design student loan debt cancellation the right way, you can provide relief to more than 40 million people. You can help close the racial wealth gap in the United States. You can create a real short-term stimulus. You can create the, a situation where there's a long-term benefit to the economy in terms of, like I said, small business formation, home purchases, and so on. 
And, and I think, you know, one of my favorite studies, there, there's a lot of theoretical studies that go around about the economic impact of student loan debt cancellation. One of my favorite studies actually followed a set of thousands of, student, of students who had their debt canceled, right? There was some dispute with a particular college as a result of that, those, you know, set, that set of students had their debt canceled. And then a bunch of researchers followed what happened to those people who had their debt canceled for the next few years. And what they found was, Obviously, there was less defaults in their life on other debts, credit card debt, mortgage debt, and so on. But there's all these other secondary effects. They were more likely to move from where they currently lived. They were more likely to switch jobs. And one thing that they found was that their incomes went up by several thousand dollars over the next few years, in large part because they were able to have that freedom to move to where a better job was, right? Or to maybe take a risk with a job that had a higher upside because they weren't way down by all this debt. So there's all of these benefits that that are hard to quantify that comes with removing this debt overhang that people have. And I think people who who do these studies and try to say, is it regressive or progressive, you know, are missing kind of missing the point on all of that. I mean, one of my, uh, some of this feels like, you know, I I propose a plan where I give the two poorest people in the United States $1,000 each and someone comes out and says, well, that's regressive because a more progressive plan would be to give $2,000 to the single poorest person in the United States, right? I, I just think that at a certain point, you're kind of losing your, the, the forest for the trees. And, and I think that that's kind of what, where we are with these critiques about student loan debt cancellation. Uh, Dr. Wong, final point. You know, I love that story from Bharat because really what he's talking about is a story of freedom as a result of government action. Right. So everybody knows that I talk all the time about neoliberalism and post neoliberalism. You can get you can have freedom from the market if government acts in accordance with the public good. And what I also loved, thank you, Elliot and Barat and Rihanna for such a robust conversation. What I love is the idea that you can really tie together questions about climate change and decarbonization and taxation and student debt. You can tie all these things up in a kind of coherent way. These aren't separate issues. These are all, these are all actions that we can take if we think about how to structure the economy and how to structure our actions, our human actions, our political actions within the economy in a way that you know, puts people at the center. So thank you, Felicia Wong, Bharat Ramamurti, Rihanna Gunn-Wright for your insight and expertise and passion for public policy in America and a better future. This is about making people's lives better fundamentally, charting a better path forward and finding a way out. Which, frankly, that was the point of the podcast. It wasn't just empty cynicism. It was trying to chart a course. So thank you so much to uh, the panelists from the Roosevelt Institute and everybody for joining this morning for this insightful conversation. Thanks so much. And again, stay safe. Made to Fail is produced by The Hub Project, Goat Rodeo, and the Roosevelt Institute. To learn more about how conservative policies have set up millions of Americans for failure in the face of a crisis, visit madetofail.org. Subscribe to Made to Fail on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss the next episode. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends. And if you want to continue the conversation online, find us on social media. We're at Made to Fail on Twitter and Facebook and Made to Fail podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening.